Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pastor Kelly, for championing these days of Daring Faith. I'm excited to embark on another week of Daring Faith together. This week in our small groups, we're going to be stretching our imagination, uh, daring to dream again, have goals again, think about what God wants us uh, to do to further the Great Commission and uh, His church and His love, His gospel, His faith. And God wants us to get us living by His promises again and living on His promises. Uh, we've had so much in the way of introduction in this series that um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right in today and right on your notes I want to remind you of our definition of faith and that is faith is seen from God's point of view. Would you write that in with me, that reminder that faith is seen. There's so many different ways to look at something and faith is when you say, you know what, I'm not going to look at this uh, only from my perspective and the way I see it or the only way that our, our family sees it or my friend sees it or... Uh, The way that this book says to see it, I'm going to do it the way God, what's God's point of view? What does God think about this? And that's living by faith. But if you want to live by faith, you have to know that there is going to be opposition to living by faith. Amen, somebody? There is opposition to seeing things. The world does not want you seeing from God's perspective. The world does not want you living by faith. One of the things that you can expect during this spiritual growth campaign, during this season, during this year of great faith, is you can expect opposition, you can expect temptation. Now thankfully, we don't have to be ignorant of the opposition that comes. In fact, you don't have to guess what kinds of temptations are going to be in your life. In fact, the world and the enemy, the devil, have no new temptations. He's been using the same temptations for thousands of years. Now, they come in a variety of of expressions, and they come in a variety of flavors and different things. But at the core, I want to submit to you today that at its core, there are only three temptations. Now, let me just pause before we start going through this and tell you that anyone who I've ever gone through this with always tells me the same thing. They say, I wish I would have heard this sooner in life. Uh, I heard this concept, what I'm about to teach today, um, late in my late teens, and I would still wished I'd heard it sooner. So I'm, I'm excited for any young people that are going to get to hear this, or really for anybody. I used to have a boss that anytime he'd have to teach me something new, he'd say, well, you'll never learn any younger. That was his thing. So I always think about that. We can start today. Living by faith is about living for the future. And so I'm excited uh, to bring this message today and show you some connections about temptation and opposition in your life. And where we find this rooted in is in the book of 1 John uh, near the end of the New Testament where John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now this is the same John, let's pause right here, the same John who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. It's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John uh, and the accounts of Jesus' life, where in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. 
So which is it? Is it do not love the world or for God so love the world? Are we supposed to love the world or not? Well, it's both. In John 3.16, God is talking about creation. He's talking about people. And he's saying God loves, God loves people. God loves his creation. In 1 John 2.15, it's talking about the value system of the world. So God's saying love the creation, love the people, but God didn't, Jesus didn't die for the value system of the world, amen? He died for people, he died to save people. So he loves the cosmos, loves creation, loves existence, loves people, but he says do not love the world, don't love its value system, anything in the world, because if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. There's not room for both inside you. You love God and his ways, you love the world and the world's ways. But then in the next verse, he gives us in three phrases, in three points, he gives the value system of the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but comes from the world. The world and its desires, so those desires, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. In that passage, we see the three world values, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And every temptation you will ever face in life comes from one of those three categories. Now, before we start writing this down, I need to give you this qualifier. I need to remind us all of this. That every temptation you face is based on a legitimate need in your life. A legitimate human need. So you have legitimate physical needs. You have emotional and mental needs that are legitimate. You have social needs that are legitimate. You have sexual needs that are legitimate. You have hunger needs that are legitimate. There's nothing wrong with them. Everything God created is good. God is the giver of all that is good. But everything can be used for its purpose, or it can, it can be used, it can be misused, it can be abused. So anything good can be used in wisdom, it can be misused unwisely, or it can be abused. Uh, you know this, we all know, like fire, for instance. Is fire a good thing? Yes. Can fire be misused? Yes, it can. Can it be handled unwisely? Yes, it can. Could fire be abused? Yes. It's the same thing with your needs, your physical needs, your sexual needs, your hunger needs, your social needs. They're all legitimate needs, they're good things, but they can be misused or abused. And Satan loves to misuse and abuse. He can't create anything. Satan doesn't create anything. So his goal is to misuse and abuse what God has created. And every temptation you have is built on this. It's a legitimate need, but the temptation is you use it in your time, your way. You see it from your perspective, not God's perspective. Use it your way, not in the way of faith. So what are the things that are in the world? What are the, ten, the three temptations? Now I wanna kinda of show you this with a chart on the screen. Uh, on your outline, it's, it's listed out, uh, so you might have to scroll up and down a little bit or work up and down, but I wanna show you on the screen uh, the way this charted out, maybe it'll make some connections. So what is, John says, all the things in the world, these three things, what are they? The lust of the flesh. 
Well, what is that? That is the temptation to feel and do. Now, is there anything wrong with feelings? No. God, give it, God gives you your, your emotions, your feelings. There's nothing wrong with, uh, pick an emotion, but it's to be in the right, right place. It's to, you're supposed to see that emotion from God's perspective. It's not wrong to feel good, but it's wrong, it's a perversion of feelings to feel the wrong way at the wrong time, in your own time, it's not faith. We'll talk more about this. But what is the lust of the flesh? It's the desire to indulge. When I have the lust of the flesh, I have the desire to indulge myself so I feel good. Now, a lot of people mean, think this just means sex, which it does. But it can also involve, there's lots of indulgences to make us feel a certain way. We can indulge in food. We could overindulge in Sleep, we could overindulge in drugs, media, a thrill, anything that provokes a feeling and an action, it's an indulgence. Again, there are legitimate and illegitimate ways to feel good. There are legitimate and illegitimate actions. And so the temptation is to indulge, though, in that, in that action. Now, what's the lust of the eyes? The lust of the eyes is the temptation to have. And the way this works is when I see something, I want it. If you didn't see it, you wouldn't want it. And that's why we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on advertising and why, friend, I don't know how many things I didn't even know I needed until I saw it on Shark Tank, right? Amen, somebody? It's like, wow, I didn't even know someone invented that and now I need it. I see it and I want it. We got to have it. And it's not the desire to indulge, it's the desire to increase Indulge my flesh and then increase my possessions. I want to have these things in my life. I see it and I want it. It's a form of greed. And then John says the pride of life. What's that? That's the temptation to be. I want to be liked. I want to be popular. I want to be loved. And again, you have a legitimate need for love and affirmation in your life. But the difference between a need and a lust is a lust is taken to uh, is taking something natural to an extreme. And all of a sudden, it's got to be all about you. And it's when the pride of life is when you think a lot of your own opinion. And it's when you're always asking, well, how does this impact me? And it becomes about self. And that's the pride of life. And it's out of the pride of life that control comes and worry comes. A lot of criticism is based on the pride of life because it says, well, I have an opinion and my opinion needs to be shared and my opinion needs to be heard and my opinion needs to be respected and it needs to be accepted. And so the pride of life. And it can grow to a place of power that says, I want to run my own life and I want to run uh, other people's lives and I want to make the decisions. I want what I want. It, what is it? The pride of life is the desire to impress. I did it my way. That's the pride of life. I'm going to impress you with the way that I've done I'm my own ingenuity. The desire to control. Let's just take a couple more words for each of these. The lust of the flesh, what is that? That's passion. 
It involves our passions, our pleasures. The lust of the eyes, that involves our possessions. We want to accrue, we want to have more. And the pride of life, if you're taking notes, is our position, having a place of power, having a place of influence. Let's just look at a couple more uh, sets of words here, one more set of words, rather. Type one temptation often shows up in sex. It's not just that, but it's, that's certainly one of the places. Has our culture become sex-driven? Yes. In fact, the world is telling people now that your identity is based in your sexual desire, that that's who you are. That's the temptation. The lust of the eyes, that's security. Has our culture become focused on financial security? Yes. It's turned to greed and greed and debt and bondage. And then one more word here if you're taking notes, the pride of life is the temptation of success. And people will run over people to get it. They'll give up on their values to be successful. Now these temptations are all around us, but let's go to a couple places in Scripture where we find these three things that, that Scripture says. One of them is in Genesis 3 where we have the story of Adam and Eve and it's human beings' first temptation. And they're being tempted by the serpent to eat from the one tree that they were not to eat from. And in Genesis 3, 6, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, notice these things, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the temptation here, if you remember, the choice was not, here's the one tree you can eat from and all the others you can't. No, the choice was the smallest choice, smallest decision. Here's all the things you can do, whatever you want. Don't do this one thing. And what do human beings do? Go to the one thing that they're told not to do. But notice the temptation for them in this moment. It was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh, the desire to indulge. That this will, this will feel good, this will be good. And sin always starts off good, doesn't it? I mean, it, Friend, if sin were like sitting on a porcupine or provoking a skunk, then we would have no problem. We'd never have to talk about it in church, right? It, there would be no temptation. But it starts off feeling good. Even the Bible says it's pleasurable for a time, but it's a short-term gain for a long-term loss, that it's not good for you. But the temptation was the lust of the flesh, and it was pleasing to the eye. That's the... Lust of the eyes. I see it and I want it. And it's desirable for gaining wisdom. The, the serpent, the temptation was, you'll be like God. It will change your position. And, and it's the pride of life. You'll be as smart as God. And this is the pride of life where we say, well, I know God says not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's a sin. It's the pride of life to say, I know God wants me to do this, but I'm not going to do that. Basically, I know better than God. I know better than God what's going to make me happy and what's good for my life. That's the pride of life. The temptation was not, hey, eat this and you'll be fallen. Eat this and you'll be more like Satan. No, the temptation was, well, this will change your position and you'll be smarter, you'll be wiser. 
Now, do you see with me in those, in those three, in Genesis 3, do you see those, those three uh, things from 1 John in there with me, those three temptations? Now, I don't have time to break this one down in the verses, but it's the same, when Jesus, after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness uh, to be tested, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And near the end of his fast, and near the end of the 40 days, the enemy comes to him and tempts him three times. Guess what three temptations they are? So the enemy comes and says, if you're the son of God, comes when he's very, very hungry, at his weakest point, and says, tell these stones to become bread. And the temptation was to indulge, to misuse his strength, which that's always our temptation. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread because I don't have that strength. But I'm tempted to misuse my strengths, and so are you, all the time. But that was the thing. It, indulge. Eat. Tell the stones to turn to bread and eat. You'll feel better. That's the lust of the flesh. The other temptation, or another temptation, is the devil takes him high up on a mountain and says, here's all the kingdoms of the world and all their possessions, all their value, all their things. And he says, I will give you all this if you fall down and worship me. That's type two, lust of the eyes. Look at all this. You can have it. Look at all these possessions. All you got to do is sell out on what God is calling you to do, and you can have all this. The third temptation is he took him to the highest point of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the top of the temple, and your angels will catch you. And when the angels catch you, everyone will worship you and honor you and you will be the greatest. Now, is there anything wrong with worshiping Jesus and him being honored? No, of course not. So what's wrong with this temptation? Well, it, it's, it's, he's saying you're gonna subvert what God call, is calling you to do. God's glory always comes through suffering. And this was the temptation to show off. Pastor Kelly taught us last week that every miracle Jesus did had a purpose to it. This miracle, if he would have done it, had no purpose other than uh, the pride of life, other than to impress. And guess what? Jesus withstood those three temptations. He understood them. He had Bible verses ready for them. He's the only one to ever withstand these temptations perfectly. So the three temptations Jesus had are the same three Adam and Eve were tested with. It's the same three that John says are in the world, the value system of the world. Someday we'll do this, but you can, you can see this all throughout Scripture. We'll, we'll look at this. Even when Satan fell from heaven, recorded in Isaiah 14, he makes three statements, and these three statements are rooted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar is in power, and it's talking about what's driving his power. He goes through these three things. Pharaoh, these three things. You can look through any temptation in the Bible, any evil person, and you see one of these three things, sometimes all three. Now, if Satan had bigger and better temptations to use against Jesus, do you think he would have used them? Yes. I think he would be pulling out the best plays on his play sheet right then and there, right? And this is what he pulls out. So we need to understand that these three types of temptation are the three philosophical underpinnings of our culture. 
It's hedonism, materialism, secularism. These are the three underpinnings of our culture. In fact, every single advertisement you see is based on one of those three things. Just, just do that this week. When you're watching television, don't, don't fast forward through the ads. Just watch them and claim them. Which one is this appealing to? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Oh, this is going to feel good. Oh, this is going to change your status in life. This is going to change how people see you. Oh, look at this. You want to have this. It's all based on these. Romans 12.2, let's read this out loud together, says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So to do this, to not conform, you got to live a, a, learn to live a counterculture life. You have to learn to identify the lie. Identify, oh, well, that's passion. Uh, that's possessions. That's power. And if you become an alert believer, you begin to see that these three temptations have infiltrated every area of our society and our culture. Again, comes in different flavors, different timing, different colors, but it's these three things. And you begin to see how they challenge the different areas of living by faith. Because they challenge you and they say, well, uh, God's not gonna provide for you. God's not going to keep his promise. Uh, God is uh, not going to lead you to holiness. And they start challenging the faith in your life. And you begin not living by faith, but you begin living by everything in the world. I'll show you one more place uh, today in Scripture where we see these, these things. It's in Hebrews 11, and we've looked at this chapter many times uh, already in Daring Faith. But when it talks about Moses in verse 24, it says, By faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he was, just to recap that story very quickly, he, Moses was born a Hebrew. And to protect him, uh, they put him in a basket and put him out on the Nile River. I love that. To protect him, they put him out on the Nile River. But that's what they did. And one of Pharaoh's daughter's servants finds him in the basket and takes him back to the palace, and Pharaoh's daughter and her servants raise him as one of Pharaoh's grandsons, as one of Pharaoh's daughter's sons. But after he'd grown up, he refused to be known as Pharaoh's uh, daughter's son. It's the pride of life, he, but he's giving up his position. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded dis disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. These three verses, we see Moses rejected the three things that we spend our entire lives trying to get. He rejected the treasure, it's lust of the eyes. He gave up the pleasure, it's lust of the flesh, and he gave up his power, his position uh, in Pharaoh's court. That's the pride of life. He turned over all three of them for what God wanted him to do. So if those are the three 
underpinnings of our culture and our society, if those are the three values of the world, what are the things that I can do, like Moses, to counter them and to dare to live a faith counterculture life? Here are the, the three things. Number one, to counter it, I need to live with integrity. This is the first thing that Moses did there. Moses says, wait a second, I'm not Pharaoh's grandson, I'm a Hebrew. And he begins living the way God created him to be. That's what integrity means, by the way. In Proverbs 11.3, let's read this one together as well. The integrity of the upright guides them but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. So those two words, you're getting the, the opposite. So integrity, integrity comes from the word integer, and it means a unit of one. It means wholeness. Integrity means the whole, the whole pie. It's not like one pie with six different pieces of flavors in it. The whole thing is the same. Integrity does not mean perfect, okay? If integrity meant perfection, uh, then no one could live a life of integrity. It it's, doesn't mean perfection because nobody's perfect. God has never used a perfect person because there are none except for Jesus. Every single person except for Jesus will sin, will fall for the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And they, before they repent and, and turn to God, we will fall for this temptation. So integrity does not mean perfect, doesn't mean you never sin, but it does mean that you can be whole, you can be an integer, you're not living life with duplicity. It means I'm the same person anywhere I go. That the way I am with my family and my kids is the same way I am at work, it's the same way I am at church, is the same way I am at small group. What you see is what you get, here I am. That's integrity. You're living by your convictions, not your feelings. You're responding to your convictions, not what's in front of you and what you see in front of you. That's how you counter the lust of the flesh, is you live with integrity. Number two, how do you uh, counter the lust of the eyes? Well, you share with generosity. Generosity is such a big issue to God because it makes us like him. Everything you have is because of the generosity of God. If God were not generous with me, I would have nothing. Zip, nada, it all comes from the generosity of God. And the hallmark of whether a person is, genu is genuinely a loving person genuinely a compassionate person is in their generosity. You can't say I'm a loving person and not be a generous person. They are synonyms. Generosity is love in action. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's when you are hospitable with someone. It's when you're charitable with someone. It's when you're loving with someone. You're kind to someone. You're patient with someone. You're giving to someone. You are showing your love for them. So in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 18, Paul is talking about those who fall for the lust of the eyes, and he says, command those who are rich in this present world, 
So those, these are the people who, they could fall into this temptation of the lust of the eyes. What, what should they do? They should not be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. I was thinking about how to illustrate this point, and I'm going I'm to try this one. Let's say that it, on December uh, 31st of this year, that that's the last date, that, that day one of 2024, uh, the United States is going to change its currency, and the dollar will be worthless January 1st of 2024. This is not a prophetic statement in any way. Please do not take this the wrong way. This is just an illustration, okay? So go with me on this. At the end of this year, the dollar is worth nothing and the United States is gonna change its currency. I have a little fun with that thought. What if they change, what would it be if they changed the currency to it? You would all of a sudden be wealthy. For me, it would be zip ties. I got a ton of zip ties. Could we change the currency to zip ties? Andy Williams vinyls. I got a bunch of those. Maybe we could change the currency to that. Uh, Engines that won't start. Turns out I have several of those. I went out warm day last week, tried to start my weed whacker, two lawnmowers, a generator, and a car. None of them would start. So I'm like, hey, I'd be wealthy if we changed it to engines that won't start, right? What would it be for you? John Wayne DVDs? I thought my dad would be wealthy if uh, we changed the currency to John Wayne DVDs. What would it be for you? Okay, I'm really getting sidetracked here. So let's say that the currency is going to change January 1st to the Japanese yen. What would be the smart thing to do? If you knew the currency was changing, what would you do? You would go out and change all of your investments, almost all of them, to the Japanese yen. Because you know that everything that you have left in dollars come January 1st is worthless. And so you would immediately change as much as possible only keep enough just to be content with in dollars because it's not going to be worthwhile very long and you would trade the rest. Now Jesus says you can either store up for yourself treasure on earth or you can store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And whatever you store up for yourself in heaven will last for eternity and whatever you stored up for yourself on earth will rust and decay and disintegrate and no longer be worth anything. If you store it up in heaven, you get to use it later. So the illustration is actually not too much of a stretch, is it? That one day, heaven's economy will overtake earth. And friend, they don't use dollars in heaven. It's going to be worthless. But what you sent up ahead, what you invest, what you stored up for yourself ahead of time will last for eternity. And Jesus says to live by faith from God's point of view, you share generously. You store it up for yourself in heaven. That's the counter to the lust of the eyes. Now, what's the counter to the pride of life? It's this. It's to serve with humility. God gives grace to the humble. You humble yourself. Did you know that the word humor and the word humility come from the same word? 
That's one way you know when someone is humble. What's a sign of humility? Ah, oh, that person's willing to laugh at themselves. That person's willing to make fun of themselves. They don't take themselves too seriously. It's a sign of humility. If you learn to laugh at yourself, by the way, you never run out of good material. You've got good material for life. The word humility also comes from the word humus, which means of the earth. It's earthy, it's down to earth. You wanna counter the pride of life? Get your hands dirty. You wanna counter the pride of life? Get your truck dirty. You wanna counter the pride of life? Serve someone, humble yourself. God says, I want you to humble yourself. In Philippians 2, three through five, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who it goes on to tell us lived in humility. I mean, talking about being of the earth, he came from heaven to earth. That's humbling yourself. But I want to close by taking you to a place Jesus makes a statement of what it means to have the same mindset of him. It's in Matthew 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, watch this now. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, all the pleasure, all the power, all the position, all the sex, salary, status, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now Jesus says, if you want to become a Christian, a disciple of Christ, <laughs> notice what he says, three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Friend, that is no accident. That is no accident that he says those three things. What's the counter to the lust of the flesh, to indulging yourself? It's to deny yourself. Sometimes it's good to deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's, that's leaving the, the pride of life. Have you ever seen someone take up their cross, take up a burden in a prideful way to suffer in pride? No. The cross was torture and execution. It was a shameful death meant for criminals. Now it's a symbol of hope, but Jesus is saying, you come and die. Taking up the cross is humbling yourself, and then he says, follow me. That's the counter to the lust of the eyes. Because if you have your eyes on Christ, you can't have your eyes on this world. And that's where the, the desire, the focus of the world goes away when you focus it on Christ and following him. So will you live a counterculture life? Will you refuse the underpinnings of our society? Will you turn from those things, turn from those sins, those temptations, and will you deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him? Will you live with integrity? Will you share with generosity? Will you serve in humility? Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I ask you to build a wall around our life through faith taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following you. 
Church, I'm just going to pray a a prayer to God right now, and I would encourage you to uh, let it be a a lead for you, for me to lead you in prayer right now. You can turn to God in your heart and mind and, and agree with me in prayer and say, God, forgive me for the times that I have taken things into my own hands and I have challenged your will, your word. God, I I have created idols. I have made many other things more important than you. And God, forgive me for the times that I have fallen for the world's value system and I have loved the world. God, I want love for the Father to be in me. God, I want a faith that relies on you, not on myself. God, I want to be proud in you, not myself. God, I want to have hope in heaven, not hope on earth. And God, I pray that my life would be filled with love. Serving, not lusting. Giving, not getting. And today, as much as I know how, Lord, I realize that you have a lifetime of things to show me about this. But today, I decide to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. I decide to humble myself and totally depend on you. I want to follow you. I want to keep my eyes on you. Help me to realize that the greatest things in life are not things, but it's faith. It is faith in you. That is the greatest thing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.